The Parable of the Tenant. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him his share at the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Well, I hope you enjoyed the reading of the parable of the tenants by my friend Lola. As we begin, I want to paraphrase that so we can unpack it a little bit more. It's the story of a landowner who plants a vineyard. He digs a wine press, he builds a tower, he builds a wall, and then he hires some tenants to farm the land. These tenants are called vine growers in some other translations. So the tenants are farming the land, and around the time of harvest, he sends some servants to uh, his vineyard to collect the harvest. But when they show up, the tenants are angry. We read that uh, the tenants actually, uh, they beat one, they kill another, they stone the third. So he decides he's going to send another set of servants. But when they arrive, the tenants do the same. Finally, he decides to send his son, and he believes that maybe these tenants will respect my son a little bit more, but it only like increases and escalates the violence for the tenants. They kill the son, believing that somehow they can take all of his inheritance and build their own world. And in the midst of this, Jesus then turns to the audience, the crowd, and he asks them this question. It's in Matthew chapter 21. Therefore, he says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, it may help to understand a little bit about the history of the Jewish people. It may help us understand how aggressive their response is here. The Jewish people have gone through 500 years of exile and enslavement. They have watched as their, their men and their women and their children have been killed or abused or drug off into slavery. Perhaps you can understand some of their anger. And so the Jewish people say, man, when the tenant comes or when the landowner comes back, he's going to give those wretches the deaths they deserve. Now, Jesus doesn't affirm their answer. But instead, he begins to shift it. Now, here, here's one thing to remember. With parables, uh, they're often easier to understand if we consider the characters in the parable and then the crowd to whom the parable is being told. So for example, in this parable, the book of Matthew is written almost exclusively to Jews. And the audience is a Jewish audience. These people we just talked about. And the most important character in the parable are actually the tenants, these evil uh, uh, vine growers, right? And for the Jewish people, who do you think they believe the tenants represent? 
Well, they're oppressors, right? They've spent 500 years in oppression. So for them, they believe that the oppressors should get the death that they deserve. That's justice. Well, Jesus doesn't affirm this. Instead, he just sort of moves the conversation into a different direction by asking them another question. We pick it up in verse 42. Then Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. What's he talking about? What is this stone, this cornerstone that he's mentioning here? Well, it might help to look at a couple of references uh, in the Old Testament. Let's talk about uh, the Messiah, prophesying a prophecy about the Messiah as, as uh, a stone. This is from Psalm 118. This is a direct quote that Jesus is using in Matthew 21. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then again, if we look at Isaiah chapter eight, he will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. So what does it mean for the people of God to reject the Messiah when he comes? How is it that the Messiah would be a trap or a snare? Well, the word for stumbling block in Greek is the word scandalone. And a scandalone, uh, the direct translation is actually something more like trap or bait. In fact, if I were to show you this picture of an animal trap, uh, this sort of bait plate in the center, if you were uh, an unwise person and you stepped on this and depressed that bait plate, you would engage like the teeth of this trap. This plate right here is called the scandalone. That like when you go, when you go down this road, like somehow you trap yourself and you ensnare yourself. How is it that the Messiah traps us? How, does, how do we run the risk of him ensnaring us? Well, to understand the answer to these questions, we need to have a conversation about the origins of human desire. How is it that you have developed your desires? Why do you desire the things that you desire? Are your desires your own? Consider fashion, for example. How do fashion trends spread or change? Why is it that one day everybody was wearing bell-bottom jeans and then the next day everybody was wearing stonewashed jeans and the next day everybody was wearing skinny jeans and today everyone's wearing like ripped up boyfriend jeans? How do those trends move? Did everyone wake up one day and decide, you know what, I think I, think I just really like some stonewashed jeans. Is it because of the quality of the product? Is it because they're so fashionable or attractive? Probably not. Let me introduce you to a man named Rene Girard. He looks pretty cool, doesn't he? He's been dead for a few years now. Later in life, Rene Girard became a Christian. And for, for, for many decades, he was a French literature professor at the University of Stanford. And he actually introduced the world to the notion of mimetic desire. Now, the word mimetic just means imitated. So when we say mimetic desire, what we mean is like we imitate desires. Here's how he would define mimetic desire. He says, it's when the choice of the object that the individual desires is not determined by the object itself, but by a third person. In other words, we imitate the desires of another. We don't desire an object because we have a need for it or an appetite for it. 
but because we, will, we believe that we will look as good as or as smart as or as fashionable as other people who are wearing it, right? So if you have an amazing sports car and I want your sports car, it's probably not because I need a car, but it's probably because I think that people will look at me in that sports car the way that I'm looking at you in that sports car. I'm envious of that. This is why uh, advertising isn't trying to make any claim that their products are superior or best. They're simply trying to get you to envision the kind of life that you will live if you're using their products. So if you drink Pepsi, apparently you'll spend most of your day on the beach surrounded by very attractive people in bathing suits. That's the promise, I suppose. Now, shared desire isn't a problem as long as there's enough stuff to go around. But there are two kinds of objects in the world. There are common objects, like, say, tacos, of which, like, there's an abundance. We'll never run out of tacos, and the world will always be a better place for that. But then there are rare objects, like lovers. And these are things that should not and cannot be shared. So then what do you do when two people imitate the desires of one another and decide that the object of their desire is the same thing, but there's only one of those things? This is when rivalry is born, can you understand? Imagine a little boy walks into a toy room and there's another little boy in there playing with a toy. Which toy do you think boy number one is gonna want to play with, right? The only toy he's interested in is the one that's already being used. And what happens if you only have one of those toys? There are not enough Daniel Tiger songs in the world about sharing to satisfy like the silence of an angry toddler. What we're trying to say then is sort of throughout human history, adults have behaved like children fighting over toys. What are you willing to do to get what you desire? What are you willing to do to get what you want? And history has shown that the answer is almost anything. When we compete for the same objects, especially objects that we love, we're swept up in rivalry that can often turn violent. We use, we're willing to use like dehumanizing language towards one another. We'll say, we'll say things about one another. Uh, we'll insult one another. We'll call people names. When we think they have something we want, we're willing to do whatever it takes. And before long, the conflict can spread through a group of people, even through a community. It begins to build and brew. And we begin fighting over our desires for things like money and power and lovers and revenge, the anger just fuels this fighting. Everyone begins pointing their fingers at everyone else. And when you're in a situation like this, what does the community do to discharge all of the violent energy so that they can still function as a civilization? Here's what doesn't happen. We do not take our violence out on our rivals, which is maybe what you would expect. We all just start fighting each other. That's not what happens. What happens is what we might call, what's been called the scapegoat mechanism. We find a scapegoat. Now the origins of the scapegoat go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. When the Israel, Israelites uh, would, would bring a, a, a pure, a kosher goat into their village and they would ritualistically transfer all of the sins of the community, all of the things that we've done bad to one another that make us mad at one another, they would transfer the sins of the community onto the head of this goat. And then the goat would be either like beaten or stoned or thrown off a cliff. And the people genuinely believed that to be rid of the goat was to be rid of the sin that was threatening them. They could go back to living at peace with one another. 
So imagine if you could, a world that's becoming more and more volatile. Imagine a world where like every day people are a little bit angrier at one another than they were the day before. Imagine a world where like the community is on edge and we're starting to see like this everyone versus everyone kind of environment. An outbreak of violence seems sort of imminent. It's in this moment that the scapegoat mechanism begins to engage. When the tension gets so great that it threatens to destroy the community, like this spontaneous and irrational mob violence erupts, unifying the community, but it erupts against one person or a group of people, someone who's like an outsider, someone who's not one of us. All of those fingers that have been pointing at each other now collectively come together and they point one unified finger at a victim. It's contagious and uh, the mob takes over. It's a kind of miracle almost. It's almost spiritual. What are the odds that in this moment, the very enemy that we need just walked in the door, saves the day. We were about to destroy each other, right? The scapegoat then is accused of like the worst crimes imaginable, things so heinous that it would justify the unrest in the community. He's the problem. It wasn't like this before he showed up. If we just got rid of him, everything would go back to normal. We'd have peace again. See, it's necessary that the people believe that the scapegoat is guilty. You can't know that your scapegoat is a scapegoat. Otherwise, you've got to come to terms with what you're doing. You have to believe they're actually guilty of the crimes that they're committed or accused of. And then the scapegoat is murdered, right? And now the crazy thing is, the crazy thing is, it actually works. The violence actually does bring peace. The people now convinced that their sins have left the building, like sense this feeling of like sudden calmness. It's like released the pressure valve. Everyone was angry at each other. Ah, it's gonna be okay. We got rid of the real problem. The murder kind of clears the air. So in first century Jerusalem, the world of this parable, after years of unrest, something had to give. The place was about to explode. And so they came up with a plan actually the head of the church came up with a plan, the chief priest. We read about it in John chapter 18. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leader that it would be good if one man died for the people. See, the violence of the death of one man is hidden and veiled by the peace that it brings. It's worth it. He even calls it good. It's worth it because it brings peace. And if you notice in the, res- or in the crucifixion stories, for almost everyone involved, except for the disciples and his family, for everyone involved, life goes back to normal within a few hours. They're moved on. Perfect. We've got our peace. We're going to be okay. The cycle relies on our blindness to its horror. And this is accomplished by the peace that it brings. The people don't know what they're doing. Remember on the cross what Jesus prays? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They think they're doing one thing, but there's another thing happening right here. The ends justify the means. And uh, the scapegoat, in a sense, must have been guilty of these awful crimes because if the scapegoat's death is the solution, then the scapegoat must have been the problem, right? It's self-fulfilling. Now we can all be friends again. Look at Luke chapter 23. It's right here in plain sight. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. 
The blood of the victim brings peace and reconciliation. It works, but it shouldn't be happening. Sure, like sacrificial violence is better than a civil war, but why aren't we um, horrified at what we're capable of? We, like, why is it we're, we're able to justify the violence? Nothing in this world is more powerful. Nothing in this world is more powerful than our need to create others, to blame them, displace them, and destroy them. And then we act like it never happened. We're really good at hiding our victims. And this way of living, it transcends race, it transcends politics, it transcends religion, and it even transcends wokeness. We have not moved past this. But one of the most incredible and often overlooked truths about the resurrection of Jesus is that because he comes back to life, the victim cannot be hidden anymore. See, uh, generally we'd never know if the scapegoat was innocent because it's dead, right? Like it can't defend itself. But with the resurrection of Jesus, he comes back to life and forces us to consider what maybe just happened. The gospel writers are very good at like including the horrific violence, but then also making sure we know that Jesus is innocent. The centurion says it at the cross. Surely this man was innocent. We hear the voices of the victim for the first time in history. You have to know how rare this is. We heard the voice of the victim. It is finished, Jesus says on the cross. No longer can we scapegoat victims to cover up for like the tension in our communities. We're supposed to learn a lesson from this. And yet, we live in a world where people still scapegoat one another. How is that possible? How is it possible that we haven't been able to learn from this? Here's where I think it gets particularly interesting. So the cross reveals the innocence of the victim. That's a good thing. And because of this, we are all now aware that we have a habit of making innocent victims. So we all like kind of put on our scapegoat sheriff badges and we decide we're going to go into the world and we're going to make sure that nobody's scapegoating anybody else. Sounds like it would be good, right? Driven by justice, good intentions. But here's the problem. What are we willing to do to make sure there's no scapegoating? Anything that it takes. Justice, violence. We can find ways to justify it. We still have scapegoats today because like the trap is so deeply ingrained in our DNA. We think our moral superiority will prevent us from falling back into the trap, but that's what actually engaged the mechanism in the first place. In the pursuit of justice, and so we just keep repeating this cycle. We stumble on the scandalone once again and we fall right back in the same track, except, except this time we've doubled down and we're like, we're like two layers deep. We victimize others and we accuse them of being victimizers and then armed with this sense of rightness or morality or religion or whatever you want to call it, we can justify our willingness to make those wretches pay the price. Yeah, but we're fighting the good fight. That's what everybody says. Everybody believes that their method of ill behavior, their method of cruelty is justified. No, 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 but he's actually a bad guy. It's okay if I say these things about him. We find ways to justify it, but in the cross, God breaks the mechanism of the scapegoat forever by becoming the victim that cannot be hidden. That as our Catholic brothers and sisters say, forces us to gaze upon the one that we have pierced. 
We're the ones who did that. We have to know what we're capable of and that we're capable of justifying it in the name of goodness. We have to be the ones who see this. Jesus becomes the sacrificed one to reveal the myth of scapegoating and to show us forever just how abusive power and vengeance can be. You cannot keep fighting fire with fire. Even if you're on the side of justice, even if you're the oppressed, even if you're the victim, even if they hurt you first, even if you're innocent, you cannot keep fighting back. We cannot move forward like this. Can you see why this would be a stumbling block? especially to a group of people who had been oppressed for 500 years. Listen, I know you think that what you want is to fight back, but I promise you it will not work. You're just descending deeper and deeper into violence. That is not the way forward. Let's come back to the parable of the tenants. Remember where we left it. Who do they think the tenants represent? They're oppressors, right? It represents the Romans. No, no, no. Jesus wants them to hear that you are the tenants in this story. You are the tenants in this parable. This is not about you. This is not about them. This is about you. You will be the one who rejects the cornerstone. You will be the one who demands blood from your oppressors. You will stumble on the scandal of who Jesus is. And so the kingdom will be taken from you and it will be given to those who produce its fruit. And what is the fruit of the kingdom of God? Well, among other things, it's peace on earth and goodwill towards humankind. Jesus does not give peace as the world does by way of the sword through redemptive violence. He brings peace by way of forgiveness through redemptive suffering, a phrase that we see Martin Luther King Junior used over and over again in his speeches. And when he returns to his disciples, walking through walls and all the, other, all the other miraculous things he does, he's not mad at them. He's not angry at them. He doesn't admonish them. You lazy cowards. How come you weren't there for me when I needed you most? No, he forgives them. And then he commissions them to go back into the world and to spread this message of forgiveness. Jesus is the forgiving victim. See, Jesus isn't concerned about being murdered. He's concerned about whether or not people are gonna understand what it means so that they'll stop the cycle of violence. You can't stop anger and aggression with more anger and aggression. It just doesn't work. Rene Girard says it like this. Well, that's the first sunrise story, the dawn of humanity where two things went wrong. First, we took to imitating each other instead of the creator in whose image we are made. And second, we descended into rivalry and violence in such a way that the only way we've been able to figure out how to stop the violence is to use more of it. And so the violence never goes away. We need to break out of this pattern of using bad tactics in the name of good faith. And instead of imitating our neighbors, I want to suggest we imitate Jesus, the imitatio Christi. Excellent idea for a poster or a tattoo. The imitatio Christi. We imitate Jesus, our suffering servant, the forgiving victim. You know, in the end, his disciples will actually become the people that the parable is telling us about. 
they killed your guy and this is how you respond? Where did they find the courage to not meet violence with violence? By imitating their rabbi. So it will be with you. Everywhere you go, you can create ripples of forgiveness and peace. We can imitate Jesus, the forgiving victim. We can dissolve conflict. We can refuse to participate in any type of us and them language by politicians or pastors or celebrities or podcast hosts or cultural movements. We don't do us and them language. That's what got us here in the first place. Because the moment we accuse them, we are engaging the very mechanism the cross was meant to destroy. We enact the very sin the cross was meant to overcome. See, the thing about blocks and stones is they can tear down or they can build up. They can be stumbling blocks, standalones, or they can be cornerstones, new foundations. With only a stone, there are very few things in the world that you can't destroy, but with only a stone, there are very few things in the world that you can't build. So the question is, which one is Jesus for you? Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray that we would be a people who are living lives that imitate you, imitate your son, that you would give us the courage to be different, to stand out in this world as voices who aren't responding to violence with violence or aggression to aggression. Bind our lips if we are willing to insult someone we disagree with. That is incompatible with the way of Jesus. Instead, make us light, make us love, make us ambassadors of peace to everyone who comes across our path that we may see your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen.